I had to tell these untold stories because I had to put these people back on the platform for me to tell these untold stories because otherwise these stories would become forgotten and these women and these people would become forgotten. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Art Persist podcast, a series by Bosler Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia and in this episode we speak to Sahela Sokhanvari. Sahela is an artist born in Shiraz, Iran, who currently lives and works in Cambridge where she's a studio artist at Weising Art Centre. She has exhibited internationally and her work now features in major permanent collections from all over the world. She gained her postgrad diploma in fine art from Chelsea College of Art and Design and her MFA from Goldsmiths College. Her current exhibition, Rebel Rebel, is showing at the Barbican's Curve Gallery until February 2023. In this episode, we talk about lots of different things, from her early introduction to art and life when she was living in Iran, to her experience of leaving Iran in the 70s and moving to England as a young girl, as well as her career change into art later in life, and finally her extraordinary exhibition Rebel Rebel at the Barbican in London, and how she reflects on it in light of the current protests in Iran. So there's an artist that I've been kind of obsessed about I think and I've loved her poetry for many years and she's the second person of the icons that appears on the wall mm-hmm. so her name is Furuk Farukhzad she was the first feminist writer poet writer and her first documentary filmmaker in Iran mm. she was born in 1934 and died in 1967 so she died very very young yeah. and uh, she was um very much ostracized by the country who couldn't understand her sexuality and her desire for sexual freedom. Mm. And uh, she was somebody that I I was introduced to by my mother, who was a literature lecturer. So as a child, I used to read her poetry. And her poetry has been banned since the revolution. So it's not as if, you know, she died in 1967 Mm. and her words are still kind of very powerful beyond grave. That's why I feel like she's a very uh, important person in my life. So just like there's a, the painting that is in the exhibition with her portrait says that the painting's titled Let Us Believe in the Beginning of a Cold Season. Mm. And one of the poetries, one of the uh, parts of the poem reads like this, one window is enough for me. One window to the moment of consciousness and looking and silence. The walnut sapling is not tall enough to explain the meaning of the wall. So it's young leaves ask the mirror, the name of your savior. It's not the earth that trembles under your feet, lonelier than you. Dreams always fall from a height of their naivete and die. I'm smelling a four-leafed clover that has gone on top of the grave of ancient concepts. Was not the woman who turned to dust in the shadow of her waiting and her chastity my youth? Will I again climb the stairs of my curiosity to greet the good God pacing on the roof of my house? I feel that time has passed me by. I feel that moment is my share of the leaves of history. I feel that the table is 
an unwanted barrier between my hair and the hands of this sad stranger. Say something to me. Does a person giving you tenderness of a warm body possibly want anything else from you besides the sense of being alive? Say something to me in the refuge of my window. I'm linked to the sun. This is a poetry called Window. Window. It's beautiful. Thank think, you so yeah, much. Thank you. I just feel like that. I love I love every one of her poetry, and I think probably butchered that one well and truly. But uh, I feel like her words are very kind of uh, metaphorical because as an artist, I think, um, as a, well, a female artist, I think the concept of freedom of sexuality has been forbidden in Iran. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think women have had to use metaphors and symbolism in order to, to speak about their desire for freedom. Mm. And Furofaros uses her metaphors in order to express her sexual desires and her and her metaphorical language is a it's like opening a um, a Pandora's box of words mm. which is very rich and um, I love her as a poet. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. It's a really thank beautiful you. poem. And thank you. I'm excited to talk a bit more about your show in a second. Thank you. But I'd love to know, to start with, just a bit about your early life. Can you tell us what life was like, where you grew up? So I was born in 1964 in Shiraz, Iran. The city that I was born in is a very ancient city. It's very close to Jamshid, which is the Persopolis of um which is like the center of the Iranian, um, the Persian Empire from 2,500 something years ago. And it's got full of um, architecture and it's full of like bazaars, which are very ancient. So mm. it's, it's a very kind of like an old city and it had um, lots of beautiful attractions for a child to visit. My mother was a literature lecturer, so she was very much into the arts. Mm. My father was a fashion designer, and before I was born, he was a model. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So um, you can find his photographs on my Instagram account. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> so um, he used to design clothes. So whenever I used to go to my father's workshop, I used to see these fabric, rolls of fabric that was lying against the wall. Uh, and it was um, very inspirational for me. As you can see, my paintings, I feel like fashion and patterns and colors are like major influence yes. on my work. So I feel like that kind of visual language has been a part of my um, creativity for many years. Yeah. And of course, my mother being a literature lecturer meant that I was very familiar with the um, literature of Iran as mm-hmm. well as Russia, and I feel like they were, they were like, a, because my, my parents refused to buy us TV uh, until about 1969, when mm-hmm. man landed on the moon, because um, mm-hmm. my father wanted to see that, my father yeah. wanted to see that <laughs> actually in the, in the, on television. We were brought up on books and playing outside. So as a child, I had a very normal childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in a way, I was spending my time writing. I was actually writing stories and illustrating them myself. So that yeah. was like, a, my, and by, by the way, my, my mother never held on to any of these books. She actually threw them out as soon as I left in Iran. Oh. So she, she doesn't have any sentimental values by the of my <laughs> creativity, obviously. So I, I just felt like that was a, um, yeah. So as a child, I used to create a lot of books and I used to illustrate them myself. Mm. So I used to spend a lot of times 
drawing and painting. My father used to show me how to paint mm. and he taught me how to like tempera. So my present technique comes from my knowledge from when I was four years old. My father wow. taught me how to like tempera. So yeah. It's amazing. Your parents sound so cool as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you left Iran in 1979, is that correct? 78. I left it in 78. I left it before the revolution actually started. Ah. And why, what was your reason for leaving? Was it because of what was going on? or? Well, I mean, um, hardly. Um, so it was at a time it was fashionable for parents that could afford to send their kids abroad, mm. to be educated, um, to send them abroad because it guaranteed them a good income on the return. Yeah. So um, my, my, my father wanted to send my brother. My parents were both wanted to send my brother because he, he didn't have a, you know, they felt like he didn't have a, that much of a future without a, a foreign education, you know, mm. better, better education. And it was something that the Shah of Iran used to encourage as well because he yeah. wanted to have a lot of people educated in Iran uh, bringing ideas from the West to, yeah. to Iran. And when they, they decided to send my brother, I said to my mom, you don't ever see any difference between your children. Why don't you send me as well? My mom said, okay, sure, I'll send you as well. So mm-hmm. it became, so it became like, um, for both of us who sent abroad in 1970, in June 1978. And, um, and that's a long story of my arriving in England. But anyway, um, as soon as we arrived in England, he was sent to Plymouth and I was sent to Bournemouth. So it was, it was split up. So oh. I was, I was brought up with that my family so overnight I lost my parents my sisters my brothers my my neighbors my school friends so it was very traumatic for me I think although I really wanted to come to England I never I I kind of underestimated the 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 trauma that it would actually going to subject me to and I think before before I left Iran one one thing that sort of made my father decide that it was perhaps time for me to come to England was the fact that my math teacher said to me, and this is like gives you the ideology of um, the time, he said to to the class, parallel lines will stay parallel if God willing. So so that was was kind of like um, something my father said, you can't teach math like that. You cannot teach teach math with uh, religion. Yeah. So he, he, I think he felt that there was a underlying um, religious ideologies that were bu- bu- bubbling up onto yeah. the surface. So mm. he felt it was time for us to, to leave. To leave. How was it living in the UK when you first arrived, those early years that you were here? First of all, my first night arriving in England, I wanted to have a shower. So um, I decided to use the bathroom and then... Um, the, the landlady said to me, I have to pull the curtain of the, you know, there was a, the, the bathroom. I don't know. You don't remember the 70s, but you, you weren't there. You know, you actually were not there in the 70s. But, <laughs> there, yeah. uh, so just 70s, they were like um, the shower curtain. So you went inside the, sh- sh- the, the bath and there was a curtain that you had to pull around you. And mm-hmm. um, I did that, but the water went all over the floor and the, um, and the plaster came down from the uh, downstairs ceiling. And oh. what happened was, I forgot, I never realized that I had to put the curtain inside the bath and oh, then yeah. the curtain. <laughs> and what happened? I couldn't understand. I, I couldn't understand English. So when she was telling me off, I couldn't understand why they did not have a wet room because in Iran we have a wet mm, room. You yeah. have a you have a room where you can actually splash about and you have a shower. Yes, you have a bath. I, and I couldn't understand why the shower room had 
carpets on the floor and there was carpets around the toilet there was carpet around the sink there was carpets on the toilet seat I I just I couldn't comprehend English enough to say to her why do you have carpet on the floor and she was shouting at me in English and I could there was this massive (laughs) language barrier and I just I felt Mm. like that was that was my first cultural shock of England and of course there was um, the, then the food, I think I couldn't eat the food because it was mm. like um, my first food in England was fish fingers and I couldn't understand which one of the fish was the fingers because <laughs> it was like, <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, I don't understand which bit of the fish is the fingers. So it was it was kind of like, um, yes, it was, I, I think on, 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 on every level, it was a, a culture shock for mm. a 14-year-old who couldn't communicate that well. I could you know, the, my English was basic. I could say this is a pencil, that's a, that's a, that's a tree, this is a cat. You know, mm. I couldn't really communicate that easily. So, yeah. um, it was, um, a, a massive learning curve. But I think visually, Iran was like Turkey at a time, mm. Turkey at the present time. So you had both veiled women and unveiled women you had women wearing bikini you know like uh, mini skirts and short mm. skirts and then you had women wearing a veil yeah. so i think visually it wasn't that much of a shock for me to come to england because there were some people who were veiled working yeah. in the streets and there were mm. lots so but um on a on a on a immediate level there was lots of cultural shocks cultural that shocks. i find i found i managed to kind of yeah, deal with. To deal this with. day, the um, the carp- carpeting everything is still baffles me. So <laughs> I still, I mean, I guess slowly people are changing, but definitely during that yes decades, everybody was, had everywhere. everybody had carpets on the bathroom floor, and I couldn't understand because in in Iran we had wet floors, bedrooms. Mm. As you can as you can imagine, I as as. As a child, I could not understand what, <laughs> why there were this sort of like um, uh, decoration. But yeah. Hi, I'm Hassan Fazula, co-founder of Basla Arts. Did you know we also have a magazine featuring seven artists from different parts of the world who are using their work to stand up to some of the most oppressive regimes? As a listener to the Art Process podcast, you can get 15% using the code T-A-P-P. That's all in capital T-A-P-P. Now back to the podcast. I'm really interested uh, in your in your story is that you you then started working as a biochemist yes. and for, for a long time I think you quite recently changed your career as an artist um, yes. can you tell us a bit about that why you tra- why you were a biochemist and if there was a one moment where you just thought enough I'm gonna pursue my career as an artist that's a very good question so mm-hmm. um, as you know as an Iranian I could not follow my my dream of becoming an artist because mm. Iranian people do not see art as a career path. Yeah, and uh, my 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 mother, who was um, um you know very much a um, academic, she felt like uh, by me becoming an artist, I was just going to become living in a gutter. You know, she just said to me, mm. you know, I I can't 
bear for you to study um, and, you know, for us to spend all this money because she was obviously paying for my education. Mm. She thought that I would not have a future. So rightly or wrongly, she stopped me from, I mean, although my father was an artist and he was actually making a lot more money than my mother was because as a fashion um, store person, he was actually making money. But soon after the revolution, obviously his store didn't make that much money because of the, Mm. um, you know, the idea that restrictions, yes. So so my my mother restricted me from following pursuit of my 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 dream and I ended up doing science because it was my only other option you know because it was only other subject which I did not hate with every fiber of my body because you know I I was I had some interest in biology I suppose and because biology involved some drawings you know Mm. I had I had to do some level of like being good at drawing diagrams and labeling them and stuff like that yeah so um I ended up working for um, St. Mary's Hospital first, and then I ended up working for Royal Free Hospital, and then I ended up working for Cambridge University. So I spent 18 years working in research. Okay. And then in 1997, I was cycling for charity between London to Brighton. You know, there's this Rich Heart Foundation Mm. thing, and I I had a severe accident where I I was going down the hill. You know, I was going down the Brighton Hill, which is like a... The very steep hill, mm-hmm. and there's two bikes in front of me that smashed into each other, and I managed to smash into. With the, with, I went with my face and my neck into their into their bike. So, oh my gosh. as I was lying on the floor, I thought to myself, because I um I had to lay still because after the ambulance people came to me, they said the way you fell, you could have potentially broken your neck. So yeah. please don't move. And I thought to myself in that moment of the journey between the accident and the hospital. Mm. I thought to myself, Sahela, you know, you've always wanted to become an artist. And if you are paralyzed from your, you know, if you end up paralyzed, then, you know, you end up taking this this dream to grave with you because mm-hmm. you ended up never doing the job that you wanted to do with, with all of your heart. You yeah. know, so I think that was a moment in my life where I thought to myself, I've got to to take the leap of faith because unless you end up doing the job that you love, you've thrown your life away. I don't yeah. want to I don't want to lie in my deathbed and say to myself I wish I had done this and then and then just like I don't I don't want that so mm-hmm. I decided that when I came out of that um hospital and then I just decided to start taking the steps towards becoming an artist and it was a matter of taking me until 2001 to get my my act together because it was a matter of getting you know saving some money mm. convincing people and uh, you know because I had a I had a child and I had a mortgage so yeah convinced my husband that I wanted mm-hmm. to do become to go from a paid job to an unpaid job where I can actually have no income and also yeah. I have to pay money to become a student so mm. that that many years in in preparing other people around me you know and then and then hand, handing my notice in 2005 as you meant, between 2001 and 2005, I ended up becoming a part-time art student, part-time scientist in order to put myself through university. Wow. So it was it was a long time coming. It was a it was a, a it wasn't like I had to chuck in my job straight away. It was a matter okay. of putting things in order in order to to take a, a leap of faith, which yeah. was. Um, yeah, it happened in 2005. And, and, then, and in 2011, when I graduated from Goldsmiths, mm. I thought to myself, maximum that will happen to me 
I will end up becoming a primary school teacher, art art teacher. Mm. But I think, you know, I genuinely believe that if you love something and if you love it with passion and, and you kind of work goddamn hard on it. Yeah. It will work it, out. And it has all to <laughs> Thank you. And it's what an incredible story though. And I think Thank you. I love I love hearing those moments of I like to think of them as like your life before and after. It's like yeah. normally a single event that just makes you reevaluate everything. Yeah. It's really inspirational as well. Um, especially as someone who had a, a successful career in something else, had children as well. Just this, it's it's very fearless and brave. And I think you're a perfect example of why you should pursue your dreams and yes. it's never too late to do that. So yeah, what a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing Thank that. you. I think bravery is very close to stupidity, but I think <laughs> <laughs> bravery is when stupidity turns out to be good. So yeah. I think, I think, yeah, thank you. Amazing. I was on your website. <laughs> it's a great website. And I just, one line from it really stuck with me. So I just wanted to ask you about it. You describe how you are drawn to events and traumas that linger in the collective consciousness or cause mass amnesia. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about that and yeah, what you mean by that and how you show that in your art? So collective amnesia and collective traumas are actually things that happens to a nation or, or a group of people, mm -hmm. you know, like I suppose like the Holocaust mm. and, and um, you know, other events which are wars, you know, people that have lived through an event which is as a nation or as a group of people that actually get traumatized by. Mm. And how if you don't talk about it and if you just leave these uh, uh, stories untold, then that becomes like an amnesia. Yeah. So, for example, this story of Iranian women who were actors and they were uh, artists, they became they became unknown because with the passage of 43 years and nobody talking about them, the trauma that was these women were subjected to, you know, the fact that they had been banned from the platform, the fact that their um, rights had been removed, the fact that they had their properties confiscated, their, their bank account frozen, you know, there's mm -hmm. a massive trauma. The fact that you've actually been banned from the art that you love and you yeah. want to passionately want to pursue. I mean, I think the... The idea that women in Iran have been traumatized, been martyred, you know, they become martyrs of the revolution, that's, that's an unarguable point. I think that's um, given, right? Yeah. So on top of the fact that they had to kind of be veiled and to wear a hijab and everything like that, they actually had to be banned from the platform that they they were successful at. They were stars mm -hmm. in, they were international stars and they were very successful. So for me, trauma is like, Unless you deal with trauma, it actually goes into your DNA and mm. it can go from generation to generation. So I feel like I had to tell these untold stories because I had to put these people back on the platform for me to tell these untold stories because otherwise these stories would become forgotten and yeah. these women and these people would become forgotten. So for me, the idea that traumas actually result in folklore and they, they result in the myths, mythologies. I think if you look at human mythology and folklore, there's always been a, a collective trauma that has led to uh, somebody like, um, I don't know, I've got COVID brain now, look, um, Robin Hood, for example. Mm. You know, I think the fact that Britain had to be 
broken under the system of taxpayers that that this figure actually grow, grew out of the idea that people were actually broken right they were actually under a lot of pressure they were traumatized yeah by king john and mm-hmm. his brother richard so i think folklore and mythologies actually um are born out of traumas and i and i felt like i did not want to allow the women to become mythologized because uh the the, the actual life stories are actually much more interesting I felt like their own personal narrative was so fascinating. And they were all yeah. rebels because, as you know, they were all kind of completely tenacious and completely powerful. Yeah. So. And it's what I really like about the show is that you have, so you have 28 portraits, I think, and you walk in and what I like is the combination of you can stand in front of the work and just take it for what it is, look at it and enjoy it and, you know, revel in it. Mm-hmm. But then you, there's a second aspect where you can then read about who that person was. And it it kind of come, it it's like this parallel thing where you can look at the art, but also mm-hmm. then learn about the person. And it's true. I mean, so the stories are mostly heartbreaking, I have to yeah. say. I mean, I've, as just reflecting on them some of them you know some people managed to escape Iran but then had to completely rebuild themselves rebuild their careers Mm. some successfully but others really not and others who stayed were forced you know either imprisoned or forced to renounce their careers and I think you mentioned quite quite often there's a signing of a letter of repentance yeah you know where they have to it's just it's really really heartbreaking tell us a bit about how you chose these 28 women to be featured in the in the show another very good good question so there's these 28 women were actually all the women that I not actually I did not know them all as a child but um, the the process of um, the exhibition has been a learning curve for me as well Mm. for example I had to do the first um, portrait as the first woman who ever appeared in, a, in Iranian cinema. So that was Rohangi Saminajat. Mm-hmm. And for me, she had to appear in there because she was the first woman who appeared without a veil in, oh. in, a, in a film Farsi, so um, in, a, in a Turkey film. So, and then the second one is like Furufarosad, um, who I just told you about. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, you know, so I think they were all kind of pioneers in their own art platform so yeah. Mahvash was the third person on that line she was a dancer and a singer and, and she was the first person actually appeared in a cinema with her own voice you know she yeah. because a lot of films that had to dub women's voices mm-hmm. and she appeared in her in her, as her own character and she sang um for her you know her, her song with her own voice so um anyway the 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 line of the women that actually are all incredibly the first of in their career and uh, so I felt like it was important to tell all the stories was there one in particular that stays with you like stands out from the show or one where while you're researching you it surprised you a bit yes so apart from who I love very much and I think she's my icon I found that Cobra Saidi which is a there's a woman um, I think she's second from the last um she's um um excuse me i find it very emotional when i talk about her mm-hmm. so cobra saidi was a what well, is a she's still alive she's a actor dancer writer poet 
and a commercial filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And um, before the revolution, she was a very successful. She, as a child, she was brought up in a family where she, her father was very abusive. So she had to escape him and she brought her siblings with her. She worked in, in theater, danced and, and, um, she um, basically paid for her, for her siblings to go through um, school. Mm. So after the revolution, she had um, she came to Germany after signing the letter of repentance. She went to Germany but couldn't make a life out there. So she went back to Iran and participated in the 1980s anti-hijab um, demonstration, which is like it's very much like what is going on right now, but it was yeah. the 1980s. And because she was a very prominent person, she was famous, she was arrested and um, they confiscated everything from her. They confiscated mm. her house, her properties. And while she was in prison, she had all her, everything stolen from her house as well. Mm. And because she had, and because she had cut off herself from her family because of her abusive father, she, when she came out of prison, she didn't actually have anyone to go back to. So yeah. she's actually presently homeless in the streets of Tehran. So to imagine you go from being a star status to being a homeless person. And um, I found that searching for her information was actually impossible because the government had removed all the information about her from every sort of search engine. So you you can't find anything about Cobra Saidi at all. And the only thing I had from her was her head. So there's only one photograph, which is like... um, her headshot mm. and then and there's another shot another photograph of her but that's so grainy you can't actually see her that well and all the you mm. know as after the revolution the government burnt all the all the cinema films and they burned the equipment that they, they actually were shown on as well wow so i had to i had to for that for that portrait i had to sit in a pose my husband took a photograph of me wow. and then i posted her head on top of my head and i put her in a in a in a moment of taking a puff from her cigarette so mm. for me for that portrait I had to actually lend her my body yeah. so I feel like that portrait for me is very close to my heart because actually it's partly me yeah. it's, it's her head and my body so I actually, I actually I had to bring her back to life as it were she's alive but she's also been decapitated metaphorically by the mm. government so that is so heartbreaking and I think it it's a really good point. I mean, it's a really, it's an evidence basically of also the struggle of, you know, people just assume that if you manage to escape your country and and move somewhere else, let's say to Europe or to America, that everything will be fine for you. You know, you're lucky you got out. But I think the exhibition really also shows that how hard it is to just leave like that. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the women that you feature also, heartbreakingly have died in poverty in America or Mm. kind of fallen into obscurity which I think is testament to how important this exhibition is as well and I think what you've done is you you know you've you've documented history and you've gone against what the the regime has tried to do which is to eradicate these women and their stories yes and you you made a good point about this the parallels with what's going on in Iran at the moment and I think it also speaks to a collective trauma and we're seeing how, you know, how women and men today in Iran are fearlessly on the streets protesting the regime and demanding their basic rights to, you know, their basic human rights. 
And it must it must have been quite emotional for you to have your exhibition running at the same time that all this was going on. How how does it feel for you? How have you reflected on it? Well, I mean, the struggle or the plight of Iranian people have been my focus of my art for many years. It's not mm. something that I've kind of been making art for recently. I mean, the story of this stars has been very recent, but I've been doing the story about um, the women and their martyrdom uh, for many years. And I and I feel like, of course, the, the exhibition also being called Rebel Rebel was very serendipitous because I felt mm. like it was very appropriately named. And I did not know because I named it a, a year ago. I think, uh, in fact, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, we decided to call it Rebel Rebel. But these kind of demonstrations break out in Iran all the time. 2019, 1,500 people were murdered by the by the regime. Mm-hmm. One thousand. Just 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 take that in for a moment. 1,500 people were yeah. murdered by the regime because they, they protested. Mm-hmm. So this sort of thing happens in Iran all the time. It's just that this time. I think it's women that are um, forefronting the, sh- the the demonstrations, yes. and they are uh, they are leaderless. So mm. women are actually leading the the protests. So I think this is like it gives us hope, and and I'm I'm sure this is the last few months of the regime because oh. I think one thing that's you can't argue about is the fact that. This this time, the global population have backed Iran yeah. in a very kind of homogenous way. I think it's mm. like a monolith of people. There's no there's no different um, uh, factions of the protest. There's not you know communist or like there's mm. no um, there's no pro Shahi or there's no pro monarchist. And I think everyone everyone's very conscious of the fact that this is a very homogeneously uh, anti. Uh, Islamic Republic yeah. movement. So I think this is going to become very successful. Many thanks to Sohaila for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about her work, please find links in the description. If you're enjoying the Arpsis podcast, please rate, follow, and share it online. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. We'll be taking a short break over the holidays, but stay tuned as the Opsis podcast will be back in early 2023. Thanks for listening. <laughs>